0: October 29th, 1912, who was alive? October 29th, 1912, Edward Lansker played opposite George Allen Thomas in a historic game of chess. If you don't know this about me, I love chess. We got any chess players out there? Oh, all right, we need to have a game later. Edward Lansker played opposite George Allen Thomas. 21 21 moves into the game, Lansker surprisingly sacrificed his queen, the most valuable piece. Now, sometimes a player will do that. They will sacrifice their queen to gain some sort of immediate advantage, like a checkmate, or one player might sacrifice their queen to take another person's queen, or vice versa. But when Lansker did it on October 29, 1912, it brought him no immediate advantage. There was no apparent reason why he did what he did. It looked like a blunder. It looked like his opponent, George Thomas, now had the upper hand. But 14 moves later, Lansker had Thomas in a checkmate. It was a brilliant sacrifice that couldn't be seen at the time. But by sacrificing his queen, Lansker forced Thomas into a series of moves that trapped Thomas's king and won the game. Now, this morning, we're going to continue our study of the book of Esther and we're going to meet our villain. Every good story needs a good villain. What would Star Wars be without Darth Vader? It would be just Star. (laughs) We meet our villain this morning, and the events that unfold seem to put the people of God in a desperate place. At the end of this chapter, it actually appears like the enemy has the upper hand. Where is God? What is he doing? Today, as we read our passage, I want to outline for you four events. Three of them actually build on each other. Four events from our story. So let's dive into chapter 3. Join me, if you haven't already, in Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. And advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, the after these things obviously is a reference to all the events that happened in chapter two that we looked at last week. Esther is now queen, she has a new life. Mordecai is still serving at the king's gate, and a new normal settles. And believe it or not, Through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, time has passed. Actually, by the time we get to the end of chapter 3, Esther's been queen for some five years. The first three chapters of Esther actually take place over a period of nine years. It's It's hard to see that when you're just reading the text, but it's been about nine years since Vashti rejected King Ahasuerus. Esther's doing queen stuff now. Mordecai checks on her. And he probably, by the way, he has to probably check on her through messengers. She's royalty now. He's a lowly guard. It's unlikely that he would actually be able to see her. And imagine how difficult that would be. Imagine having a child that you raised, that child forcibly taken from you. You know where that child is, and you know that child's cared for, but you can't see him. her. He can't see her. They don't have actual contact. Now, Haman... Haman takes the scene. King Ahasuerus promotes Haman. And as he walks out on the scene of our story, you can just hear John Williams' Imperial March theme playing in the background. Ahasuerus is promoted. or I'm sorry, Haman is promoted. Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. Now, you might remember last week that I told you that one of the reason we have genealogies in the Bible is to make connections to biblical characters. Last week, we saw that Mordecai was a Benjaminite, likely distantly related to Kish, King Saul's father. Haman is called here in our text an Agagite. Haman is somehow connected to Agag. Agag was king of the Amalekites, and the Amalekites were descendants of Amalek, who was grandson to Esau. There was much hostility between Israel and the Amalekites, so much hostility that God actually pronounces a curse on the Amalekites in Exodus chapter 17. You can read this on the screen. God says to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. As curses go, that's pretty bad. Years after the Exodus, in 1 Samuel 15, you may remember the story King Saul was sent to destroy the Amalekites. This is where King Saul failed. He was told to go in and completely destroy the people, destroy the king, destroy even the livestock, just take it all out. But he didn't do that. He stopped short. He left the king alive, he left the livestock alive. Samuel the prophet actually kills King Agag when Saul failed to do so. Fast forward 550 years. Haman here is called an Agagite. Now, there's actually two theories about this. One is that Haman is an actual descendant of Agag. And although hundreds of years has passed, there is still hostility between Israel and Amalek. In this theory, both Haman and Mordecai realize who the other person is. Think of the irony. Think of the irony for just a second. Amalek's not a nation anymore. Israel's not a nation anymore. But you have a descendant of Saul and a descendant of Agag in Persia. That's one theory, like I said. There's also another theory. Excuse me. It's actually hard to prove that Haman is a physical descendant of Agag. Often, the Jews would associate any enemy of Israel with Agag. Sometimes, if, if, if there was an enemy of Israel, they would just be called an Agagite. If there was someone who was hostile to Israel, they would simply say, that's an Agagite. And the Israel, the Jews, would know they're relating that person to Agag. It's kind of like today. If we had a major dictator rise up who was violent, we might say something like, he's just like Hitler. Same idea. So it could be that Haman's not descendant of Agag, but simply given the title of an Agagite. Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Now, an interesting little tidbit every year at the celebration of Purim, even still today, the book of Esther is read publicly. And that takes place, Purim, by the way, takes place typically on the 14th of March. During the reading, whenever the reader gets to the name Haman, the crowd will boo. I even read somewhere that that children have these noisemakers called groggers that they will spin to to cover up the name Haman so that you can't even hear the name Haman. Imagine that, 3,000 years after Agag's death, and there's still the signs of hostility. Read on, verse 2, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the gate, king's gates, said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to him, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Now, you get what's going on here. Mordecai will not bow down to Haman, even though it's the king's command. Now, the exact reason that Mordecai won't do this isn't given, which that, by the way, is reason to suggest that maybe Haman is a descendant of Agag, but it's not conclusive. The point is that Haman is second in command the king has given the command that you were to respect Haman by bowing down, but Mordecai refuses to do that. Why? I mean, he's essentially breaking the law here. A couple thoughts are given. One, if Haman is an actual descendant of Agag, that hostility obviously still exists between Israel and Amalek, Mordecai's refusal to bow down may simply be just personal. Not going to do it. Animosity over hundreds of years. Others have suggested that maybe Mordecai wouldn't bow down because of religious principles, that it would be like idolatry to bow down to another human being. But I have to confess to you that it seems unlikely because we know even from Scripture that Israelites would bow to others out of respect. When Abraham went to purchase a burial plot for Sarah when she died, he bowed to the people of the land, the Hittites, a pagan people, out of respect. The bottom line is we don't know why Mordecai was disobedient. He may have had a perfectly legitimate, even righteous before God reason to do so. All we know is that he wouldn't do it. So we see in our text that the servants are questioning him. Now visualize this, visualize this in your mind. Mordecai serves at the king's gate. Archaeologists, archaeologists have uncovered a gate that could very well be where Mordecai served. And it wasn't just a simple archway with a portcullis like you see in many movies. It was likely a building, like a tunnel, picture in your head, a massive tunnel. Archaeologists even discovered that there were rooms off to the side, so you could have as many as a hundred or more servants in this gate. So you can picture in your mind, Haman is walking through this gate, probably walks it every day. Mordecai is there along with all these other servants. The servants are bowing down to Haman as he's walking, and Mordecai is just standing there. Could go completely unnoticed. You have all those people bowing down, and we know that often royalty doesn't even regard servants. Haman probably doesn't even see it. He's just walking along. Servants are bowing. Mordecai's standing off to the side. But the servants around Mordecai would, of course, noticed, and they question him, and they find out that he's a Jew, which is interesting. Because he told Esther not to say anything about that. Why did he tell them he was a Jew? Well, Maybe he just got tired of being pestered about it. Maybe after over and over, he finally gave in and he said, look, I'm not doing this because I'm a Jew. Which, by the way, that's another, another evidence that maybe Haman was a direct descendant of Agag. But again, it's not conclusive. Well, the servants, wanting to know what's going to happen here, maybe even wanting to, cur- to cause a little trouble, who knows, they go tell Haman. And then you can see it in your head the next time that Haman goes through the tunnel, now he's watching and he sees. Look at verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. So I can just see Haman walking through this, this tunnel gate and he spots Haman and he's angry. You've got a hundred or so servants bowing down to you, but one doesn't. What does that tell us about Haman? Haman liked respect. He didn't just like it. He loved it. He didn't just love it. His whole identity was wrapped up in being respected by others. He wanted others to be subordinate to him. And we actually see that idea being played out in Haman's life through the rest of the book of Esther. Haman sees Mordecai. Mordecai won't bow. Haman's furious. Look at verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom. Of Ahasuerus. That phrase there, but he disdained, communicates the idea that simply dealing with Mordecai was not enough. Simply dealing with Mordecai was beneath Haman's dignity. All the Jews had to suffer. Now, whether Haman is acting in reference to an ancestral hatred toward the Jews or not, the bottom line is he was so infuriated by Mordecai's refusal to bow, he wanted all the Jews to be destroyed. Now, you know, it's bad enough to want revenge on someone. It's bad enough to want to get back at someone. In fact, everyone in this room has felt that. Just remember the last time you got cut off in traffic. What did you want to do? You wanted to ram them. I'm convinced this is why that God didn't make me a Jedi. I'd be flinging cars off the road. Anyway, it's natural to want to get back at people. It's wrong. Jesus didn't get back at those who wronged him, but it's natural to want to get back at somebody. But I have to wonder if anyone in this room has ever felt the desire to not just get back at the person who wronged them, but to get back at their entire family. I'm not just going to hurt you. I'm going to hurt your mama, your daddy, and your third cousin. Why all this hatred? You know, it's interesting. There's a parallel here to chapter one. One of the things I've noticed is that the men in power in Persia They overreact. Think back to chapter 1. Ahasuerus is inflamed by Vashti's disobedience just as Haman is inflamed by Mordecai's disobedience. Ahasuerus makes a rash decision that affects all the women in the kingdom. Haman makes a rash decision affecting all the Jews. You got to wonder if this is why Haman was promoted because he and Ahasuerus were so alike. Haman's in a place of power, and Mordecai's defiance, for right or for wrong, was all that was needed for Haman to act. It's been a while to, to get to your first point, but here it is, a vexing offense. Your first point this morning, a vexing offense. What we see here is Mordecai offends Haman, and it makes him mad. It makes him furious. Now, again, the text doesn't tell us if Mordecai had the right to disobey or not. It doesn't condemn him. It doesn't commend him. He could have been perfectly righteous in the sight of God for doing what he did. But I do want to point something out about our actions. Our actions for right or for wrong have consequences. Mordecai's actions led to great consequences. One act of disobedience affected an entire nation. So let me just challenge you this morning. Be thoughtful about your convictions be thoughtful about your convictions i'm not take, saying don't take a stand i'm not saying you know if the possibility of your consequences should if it's if it's a great consequences or, or a result of your taking a stand then don't do them that's not what i'm saying what i'm saying is we ought to give careful thought to our convictions we ought to give careful thought to what our convictions are and how we follow them you know i once heard a story of two street preachers Both stood on the street corners proclaiming the gospel. Both were approached by the police and told they needed a permit to preach in that city. One of the street preachers raised all kinds of ruckus, government overreach, persecution, all that, and he wound up in jail. The other street preacher humbly went to City Hall, got a permit, and went back to proclaiming the gospel. Both men were following their convictions to preach the gospel in the streets, but the one who raised a ruckus honestly did more damage to his witness. So my challenge to you is follow your biblical convictions, absolutely, but we should give careful thought as to how we do that. Can you follow your convictions in a way that is peaceful, a way that is humble, a way that brings honor to God? Now back to our story. Haman's fury has led him to desire the destruction of the entire Jewish people. Why? I mean, stop and think about it again. He was second in command of the entire Persian Empire. He could have easily just had Mordecai executed, but that wasn't enough. Now, doubtless, anti-Semitism is playing a huge part here. I believe that. But I also believe there's something else going on under the surface. Who would relish In the destruction of the Jews. Who would love to blot out God's people, thus preventing the Messiah from coming? Who would see the destruction of the Jews as God's defeat? Satan. Is there an undertone of satanic forces here at work? I think so. Without the Jews, God's promises are void no Messiah, no Savior. No hope for mankind. And you know, we've seen this over the course of history, haven't we? How many times has the nation of Israel been under threat? How many times have the Jews faced possible annihilation? Why? Because God made a covenant with them. And he's working even now to restore that nation. And Satan hates that. What's going to happen next? Join me in verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur—that that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Here's your second point, a vicious plot. So a vexing offense leads to a vicious plot. Now notice that the authors in verse 7, he starts off telling us what time of year it is in the first month, which is the month of Nisan. Now that might not mean anything to us on the surface, but there's a reason why he's telling us that. The original readers would have read that and it would instantly thought Passover. That was the time of the Passover. That was the time the Jews should have been celebrating Passover. It's kind of like if I told you I had a car accident on December 25th, the first thing you'd think of is, oh, Christmas Day, That's awful. That's the idea here. The Passover, by the way, is the celebration of God's deliverance from Egypt. So the author is setting us up to say, is history going to repeat itself here? Is God going to deliver his people again? Or are the Jews doomed? Now, you've probably heard about this idea of casting lots. Pur is the Babylonian word for lots, and it had the idea of rolling cubes like dice with markings on them. The practice was used of making decisions. Haman is using the t- practice to determine when would be the best time to carry out his plan. He's trying to figure out when is gonna be a good time. He's got a plan already. He's got a plot. He wants to know when would be a good time to carry this plot out. It was a means of divination. It was a way of consulting the gods. Today, it would be like observing the horoscope to try to figure out one's best course of action. Now, it's interesting to note, though, that the Israelites also used lots. You've probably read about them in the Old Testament. The priests actually kept what they would call the Urim and the Thummim in a pouch on their their ephod, which was a garment they wore. But the difference there is God told them to do that. Remember, this is pre-Holy Spirit poured out. One of the ways that God communicated with His people is through the Urim and the Thummim. Haman's lots land on the 12th month, which is about February, March in our time frame. So There's an approximately an eleventh month interval between what Haman is doing now and when he's going to carry out his plan. So having that time frame in mind, he goes to the king. Look at verse 8. Then Haman said to king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleased the king... Let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Now just think about how casual, how subtle, how Haman withholds details. I can almost hear the serpent in the garden whispering, did God actually say? Haman, no details, There's a certain people, they have different laws, it's not to your profit to keep them around. Then he offers 10,000 talents of silver, which would approximate to 375 tons. One author, by the way, says, or one commentator, rather, says that that would probably have appealed to the king after his great loss in fighting Greece, which we learned a couple weeks ago. But watch what happens, verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do doeth as it seems good to you. In other words, keep the money, do what you want with the people. No questions asked. I told you last week that Ahasuerus was not a great leader, and this is evidence. He doesn't inquire one bit. He doesn't ask one question. Who are these people? What kind of laws do they have? How is it not an advantage for me to keep them right? No questions. Just whatever. Do what you want. He's effectively saying, do what you want. And by the way, here's my signet ring. The signet ring, it was kind of like a blank check. It was used to seal documents. You may have seen this in movies. A document would be sealed with wax, and the king would take his ring and make an impression in the wax, And that design and that ring would tell the recipients, this is from the king. Haman now is given royal authority to carry out his plan. It's a vicious plot. And you can see the chain of events here. Haman is promoted. Mordecai refuses to pay his respect. Haman is furious and comes up with a plan. He figures out the timing. He presents it to the king. And now he has full authority to do whatever he wants. And he wants blood. Vicious plots, by the way, are being hatched every day. Just think about the senseless, random acts of violence that we read about in the news. And of course, these are not as extensively thought out nor as widespread as Haman is seeking to do here, but they are nonetheless vicious, wicked, evil. And the victims of such events are often sideswiped, didn't even see it coming. Sometimes we read about things like that in the news and we're like, what is the answer here? Friends, the answer is the gospel. Friends, the answer is that our world is broken and needs Jesus Christ. And when we read about events like this, I wonder, do you pause and do you pray? You might think, what can one prayer do against such viciousness? Remember who you're praying to. The people, both the victims and the perpetrators, need the gospel. Let me challenge you. Take a moment and pray the next time you hear of some vicious plot like this. But, you know, let's make this a little more personal. There's another way we can look at this. You might have vicious people in your life. Maybe not to the extreme. I hope not to the extreme as Haman here or the extreme acts of violence that we see on the news all the time. But there might be people in your life looking to undermine you. Maybe even hates you because you're a Christian. Maybe you have relationships at work like this or in your extended family or in your neighborhood. Perhaps you're even dealing with something right now with someone who's just being nasty. What's the answer? The gospel. Okay, they're not even going to listen to me. What's the answer? Love. Love. Jesus said in Luke six, "Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you." Harvest decatur. Who in your life needs your love and prayers? Let's get back to our story. Story verse twelve. Then the king's scribes were summoned. On the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Just take in the detail. An edict was written to all that Haman commanded. Everything that Haman said was written down. It was given to the satraps and the governors, the politicians, in other words. But it also went to all the provinces, 127, if you remember from chapter 1, to all the officials, every province, every people, its own script, everybody's own language. What was this? This was B.C. social media. That's what this was. And everyone is going to know. And not only is it sealed with a king's signet ring, which, by the way, we learned about in chapter 1, an edict like this could not be revoked. It's one of the reasons why we learned about that in chapter 1, so that when you get to this point, you think, my goodness, there's no hope. This can't be revoked, not even by the king. This has gone into law. And once that was done, the fate of the Jews was literally sealed. The enemy had the upper hand. Verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. What is this? It's genocide. It's the total destruction of an entire people group. And if anti-Semitism wasn't enough of a motive, they're also given the right to plunder their goods kill and take what they have. And notice the words he used there, to kill, to destroy, to annihilate. One of them would have done. You can sense Haman's anger by the fact that he uses three words like this to destroy the Jews, take everything they have, possessions, livestock, whatever. And the Jews can do nothing. Nothing. Your third point this morning is a violent edict. We've seen a vexing offense, now a violent edict. It's all built on itself, leading to this moment. Verse 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree to every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. Not only was it written, but look at the word proclamation. It was to be heralded. Perhaps you've seen in movies where a herald would stand in a town square and make a pronouncement from the royal throne. Haman wants to get the word out and he wants everyone to know. Verse 15: The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Haman and the king casually celebrate the coming event, and yet the city is perplexed about this. I find that interesting. That even in an anti Semitic culture, the city is troubled by the extent of this edict. Now, at this point, the outcome seems certain. An edict, an irrevocable edict, has gone out. It can't be undone. It's hopeless. The Jews are doomed. The enemy has the upper hand. Stop and think for a second. What kind of situations have you faced where you felt all hope is lost? Maybe a member of your family who refuses to accept Christ and you do think to yourself, they'll never receive him. Maybe someone you know who has a life pattern of bad, awful, horrible choices and you think she'll never change. Maybe even you think about yourself in your own struggles and own sin and temptation in your life, and you think to yourself, I'm always going to be like this. There's no hope. In this area, the enemy has the upper hand. Is that really the kind of attitude that we should have as those who believe that God spoke the universe into existence? might seem like there's no hope for some people. Might even for ourselves in certain matters, we might feel like, I'm never going to change here. But don't discount the awesome power of God. Could God be using some seemingly hopeless situation in your life to call you to a deeper level of faith? Could God be allowing the enemy to appear like he has the upper hand to force you to trust him more? When I introduced the book of Esther a couple of weeks back, I told you that John MacArthur compared Esther to a cosmic chess game between God and Satan. At this point in our story, it's almost like Satan makes a move, looks at God, and says, check. What's God going to do now? Can he come back from this? Are the Jews in mortal danger? Remember, Ahasuerus' kingdom ranges most of the known world. Even Israel, where the temple has been rebelled, is under Ahasuerus' reign. No Jew is going to escape this. And there's not a man or woman that can change this. Or is there? You know, winning at chess is all about making strategic moves, even early on in the game. It's God's turn here. What's he going to do? Brothers and sisters, he's already done it. When I began this sermon, you might have thought that I skipped something. I did, but it was intentional. I'd like you now to back up to chapter 2. We ended chapter 2 with Esther becoming queen, but we didn't go into verses 19 through 23. I'd like to read that now. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting in the gate, A prepared God. A prepared God. Nothing takes God by surprise. Now, as we read this account of Mordecai foiling this assassination attempt, it almost kind of seems like a throwaway. It had nothing to do with Esther becoming queen, it had nothing to do with what happens in chapter three. It's just kind of there. Oftentimes, when you're watching a movie or you're reading a novel, sometimes Things will happen early on in the story that just kind of seem there. It's like, what was the point of that? But then you find out later in the story that it ties in really well. There was an entire point to that that we may not have even seen coming. And that's what's happening here. You know, the first thing the original readers would have thought by finishing chapter 2 and starting chapter 3, the first thing they would have thought is, why wasn't Mordecai promoted? Kings would often do that. If you did a service to a king, he would reward you by promoting you. But Mordecai is forgotten. And the next thing we read in chapter 3, Haman is promoted. What's going on? Why was Mordecai passed up? You know, it's also interesting. This little section of Scripture, chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, is actually, you can look at it as a mini-summary of the entire book of Esther. There's a plot. Mordecai and Esther step in. They're right where they are, where they need to be, and stop the plot. Chapter 3, Haman is hatching a plot. What is God going to do about it? His people are in jeopardy. But the ironic thing, God has already put the pieces in place. We just can't see it yet. If this were a cosmic chess game, then chapter 2, 19 through 20 almost feels like a throwaway move. But What was the point of that? A sacrifice that didn't go anywhere. But this is going to come up later in our story. And if Mordecai hadn't saved the king, if Mordecai hadn't foiled this plot, well, you just have to come back and see what happens. But you know, we can learn something. We can learn something from chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. Mordecai and Esther are right where they need to be. Despite how they got there, despite last week and all the yuck that we saw and that we read about that led Esther to becoming queen, despite all that, they're right where they need to be by the veiled providence of God. And that, brothers and sisters, should comfort you and should comfort me because no matter where you are in your life, God has put you right where you are. Despite all the yuck that you have in your past, and we all have it, every single one of us has decisions that we regret and we wish we could go back and undo, and I wish I could change this, and I wish I could have made that decision instead of this. We all have that, but despite all that, God has brought you to this point for his purpose. I've said it before and I will say it again. You can't thwart God's plan. That doesn't mean there are consequences. Absolutely, there are consequences for our actions, but we can't ultimately thwart God's plan. And right now, the Jews look like the end is in sight. But God's not done. Let me just say one more thing. You know, maybe like Mordecai at the end of chapter two, maybe you feel like you've been passed up. Maybe you feel, I've been loyal. I've tried to follow God. I've really given him my heart, and I've striven to be what he wants me to be. And yet, it feels like he's not even listening right now. Maybe like Mordecai, everyone around you seems to be prospering, even unbelievers, even those antagonistic to the gospel, and you think, what's going on here? Why am I in this position? Why am I still suffering like this? Why are these these, these things in my life, why am I still in such a dark place? Maybe it feels to you like the enemy has the upper hand in your life. But friends, God has you right where he wants you. And he's already put the pieces in place to deal with whatever situation you're in. We just can't see it yet. You know, when Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, there was a plot. The Pharisees had hatched a scheme, but there was no Mordecai, there was no Esther no one to come to Jesus' aid. There were no pieces in place to stop the chain of events resulting in the crucifixion. The Father did not take the cup from the Son. You could say that Satan's plan to stop the Messiah finally came into fruition. Jesus was crucified. The game was over. Only the crucifixion was God's plan. That was God's master move. That was God's checkmate. If Jesus hadn't gone to the cross, then your past would be your doom. Your hope would be futile. And no matter where you are today, there's no point. But Jesus took those nails for the purpose of redeeming mankind. So for everyone in this room, where you are today, has purpose, not just in this life, but for all eternity. God is working. Christ went through the cross so that every mistake you ever made can be wiped clean, and so that his ultimate plan in you cannot be thwarted, so that right now where you are in your life, you have purpose. He has you where he wants you, and though the humdrum of day-to-day activity seems pointless sometimes, God is working. And he's working in you. We stop our story for the week and it appears as though Satan has the other hand, upper hand. But friends, the game's not over. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good. So very, very good. Nothing takes you by surprise. No human can thwart your plan. And no matter what we have done, no matter the mistakes we have made, you have us right where you want us. Help us see that. Help us in our day-to-day know that you've got me right here for a purpose. Lord, show us your purpose. Help us be sensitive to the leading of your spirit. We love you and we praise you. Amen.